Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. We've been working our way for some time through the gospel of Jesus the King in the book of Matthew. Today we come to a tragic section in Jesus' life, the humiliation of Jesus the King. The humiliation of Jesus the King. Brian, I want to make sure we're clicked into that. I'm not uh, connected. There we go. I want to make sure we're, uh, all right, we're good to go now. All right, should be good to go. Thank you. The humiliation of Jesus the King. As we work through this passage, we'll see this central idea that the gruesome humiliation of Jesus leads to beautiful redemption for sinners. The gruesome humiliation of Jesus leads to beautiful redemption for sinners. We'll walk through the first 31 verses of chapter 27, so I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read aloud. Matthew 27. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You've said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him, and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. 
And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. The 1989 cult classic film starring Kevin Costner, Field of Dreams, about a farmer in Iowa who cleared his field for baseball, heard that the players would come. Stars a a well-known upstate South Carolina man, Shoeless Joe Jackson from Pickens, South Carolina. When he cleared this field, sure enough, the dream did come true and the players could show up on the field of dreams. Now, these players were particularly notorious because they were all members of the 1919 Black Sox team. They weren't the Chicago Black Sox, but they became known as the Black Sox because of a scandal. That field, that field of dreams has kind of come on through common folklore down to the day. Well, here in our passage, we have a different kind of field, a field of blood. The blood money used to betray Jesus is used to purchase a field, and that field has lived through the centuries known as a field of blood. And what happens in this chapter is no dream. It's a nightmare. And yet, it's real. The greatest evil the world has ever seen somehow leads to the greatest good the world has ever seen. The gruesome suffering of Jesus leads to redemption. Jesus has spent Thursday night under an illegal cross-examination by the Jewish authorities. But they're limited in what they can do. They want to put Jesus to death, but they're not permitted by law to do so. So Friday morning, we find Jesus for Pilate, the Roman governor. Now behind all these things, we have the Jews committing atrocious abuse. There's no one here who stands up for true justice, but the source of all of this injustice is a familiar group, verse 1, the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus. The Jewish leaders are sort of the power behind the throne. They're orchestrating every step. I mean, Pilate is ostensibly in charge. But it's the chief priests and elders who who push the issue forward. I mean, take a moment one day this week and read through chapters 26 and 27 and look for each time you find these, these groups acting. First, they're plotting against Jesus. Then bribing Judas to betray Jesus. Arresting Jesus at night. Trying Jesus in an illegal trial. Falsely accusing Jesus at his Roman trial. Agitating the crowd. Mocking Jesus publicly. Securing the tomb. There is great evil on our parts in this moment, but the greatest evil lies in these religious leaders. Now, contrary to much of popular opinion today, religion isn't the great evil in the world. But Christless religion is one of the greatest dangers. To have people literally say things like, don't quote the Bible at me, as professing believers, is a dangerous way of thinking and living. Now, there's a way of using the Bible that's unhelpful. But there are a lot of things that God is really clear about, especially how we treat each other. 
It's not enough for us to say, well, that's just how I am. Because it's true, that's how we are, apart from Christ. But in Christ, we are new creations. And that's why Christless Christianity is so dangerous. I mean, we need God's spirit and God's grace far more than we could ever imagine. And if our idea of Christianity looks more like a set of cultural norms than it looks like the life Jesus lived out in God's word, we're missing what God has said. If our life looks like more like a set of expectations than love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control, this is the Christ-centered, spirit-filled life. Jews are working behind the scenes, professed religious people, but no Christ. Another evil person in the story, of course, is Judas. Judas' life is marked by deceit, but here we see it marked by regret as well. Now, Matthew is the only gospel to tell us about Judas's death. Acts chapter 1 adds a few more details. His death is a gruesome way to get. We see that after he hangs himself, he falls to the ground and his insides burst open. Why does God go to such extent to tell us about the passing of this sinful man? Matthew repeatedly makes the point that God is bringing his word to pass. So the death of Judas isn't a weird blip. It's a way of demonstrating what Jesus has already said. The scriptures will be fulfilled. What God has said will happen. Now, up to this point, Peter's been the only disciple kind of hanging back from a distance. But now we see Judas here too, verse 3. When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. Now, there are many folks here who have had buyer's remorse. And the good news is that in our world, if you buy something, often you can return it if it's in the condition that you bought it in. Judas attempts to make an exchange, but he finds out that changing his mind won't do him any good. Not only did he do Jesus dirty, he recognizes in verse 4 that he betrayed innocent blood. Jewish leaders, though, aren't about to uh, give him his money back. They're like, that's, that's your problem. So Judas throws the money down in the temple and goes out to commit suicide. The traitor has sold Jesus to die. He now dies at his own hands. Matthew quotes from Zechariah 11 verse 13 and alludes to Jeremiah predicting that this very thing would happen. I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Centuries before, God had predicted that Judas would pass this way and so Judas passed this way. But the Jews have a problem. They've got blood money inside the temple. Now, ironically enough, they likely took this very same money from the temple treasury to purchase Jesus' betrayal. But now they can't put this same money back into the treasury because it's now blood money, dirty money. I mean, just think about the level of hypocrisy here. They can use the money to purchase an execution, but after it's purchased that execution, uh, it's dirty money now that Judas is returning it. Isn't that how hypocrisy is? It blinds us. It allows us to pat ourselves on the back for going to church, but treating people in that church like dirt. 
Hypocrisy enables people to feel good about themselves as good church-going people, but gossip and slander the people they worship with. Hypocrisy paints the outside of the barn while the inside is full of manure. So you've got the chief priests and the elders, you've got Judas, but meanwhile you've got the Roman governor, Pilate, completely abandoning his responsibilities in leadership. He manifests total weakness here. Now you may have heard the saying, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Now for Pilate, it's more like when the going gets tough, the tough get out of town. Because he doesn't want any part of this. Pilate's the fifth Roman governor of Palestine. Now he doesn't live in Jerusalem most of the time. Most of the time he lives away from the city. But he comes in at major festivals or big events like Passover. Now out of 14 governors in Palestine who ruled that area for Rome, Pilate's 12-year reign is the longest. It was not an easy place to govern. He was noted for being uh, politically agile or astute, but he was also pretty stubborn. And his stubbornness would get him in trouble at times, both with the people he governed as well as with Rome itself. Pilate was pretty good at reading situations and uh, nimbly navigating complex issues. But he was at other times noted for his hard-headedness. One time, uh, just as a way of sort of demonstrating Roman rule, he had all through the city, down the roads, he had busts of, of the emperor placed on Roman standards. Now, if you know anything about Jewish law, this is not allowed. Because not only is this a figure of a man, he's someone that the, the, that the Roman soldiers would worship. And so the Jews rioted in the streets because this broke the second commandments. You shouldn't make a false image to worship. They protest outside of Pilate's home for five days. And he's finally he's like, kill them all. But then the Jewish protesters outside bared their throats and they're like, go ahead and kill us. And he knew if he killed the protesters, he'd just make them martyrs and have a worse situation on his hands. So he ends up taking down the images of the emperor. Well, there are many clashes in Pilate's history between him and the Jewish crowd. So the situation we have here today isn't exactly unique in his life. He's a little bit like uh, the British governor trying to uh, run Massachusetts in the days leading up to the Revolutionary War. It is not an easy job keeping a lid on this kettle. The Jewish writer Philo tells us that Pilate was inflexible, stubborn, and cruel. So Pilate's apparent indecision here isn't really driven by personal compassion, but by political convenience. It's a pragmatic marriage of his desire to manage the passions of the Jewish crowd with his responsibility in governing the province. But unlike the Jewish leaders, Pilate's not motivated primarily by a desire to crush Jesus at all costs. He's, he's kind of like, I don't care. He just wants to keep the peace. Maintain a semblance of order in a time where it was very difficult to maintain law and order. If he does the wrong thing, he can light a powder keg and sit off a revolution and the city will explode in violence. Pilate knows what's at stake here. So he asked Jesus in verse 11, are you the king of the Jews? Now the way Pilate asked this, he asked it as a leading question. You're the king of the Jews, aren't you? He's not asking an open-ended, honest question. Now the Jews had gotten worked up about what? About Jesus' statements about the temple and his supposed blasphemy. But in Pilate's world, is blasphemy against the God of Israel any big deal? No, it's not. It's nothing he's concerned about. 
But Pilate would have to be concerned about it. Jesus were making a claim to be ruler over Israel. A claim to be king is a problem for Pilate. Now, while the Romans required many heirs of the empire to submit to emperor worship, Israel was an exception. They allowed the Jews to keep their Jewish religion. So the trick here is that the Jews must get Pilate to see Jesus as a political threat. You see, they saw him as a religious threat. Pilate must see him as a political threat. Jesus responds to Pilate in verse 11. Are you the king of the Jews? You said so. Jesus has now said this to Judas, to Caiaphas, and to Pilate. Remarkably, God is using sinful people to speak the truth. So Jesus doesn't have to answer a word. If Jesus answers yes, Pilate has no choice but to execute him. But Jesus responds rather shrewdly. In verse 12, the chief priests add a bunch of accusations to Jesus' rap sheet, certainly nothing he hasn't heard the night before. So Pilate asks him to defend himself. Yet verse 14 tells us what? That Jesus gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. Jesus fulfills the words of Isaiah 53. Like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. I mean, there's so much good in this moment. The ultimate good being the redemptive plan that God is working. But note for a moment the model of Jesus. He's being falsely accused, grossly abused, yet humbly submits himself without feeling the need to justify himself. Why? Why would he do this? How does he find the kind of personal discipline to do this? Hebrews 12 tells us that we should look to Jesus the founder and completer of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus did this because of the joy that lay ahead. If all he could see was what was around him, he couldn't suffer with that view in mind. He's not suffering merely as an example. He's suffering in our place. And the joy of redemption and the joy of glory lies ahead. So, what can we learn from this? Well, there are moments when we should stand up and be counted for the sake of truth. It's not a commendation that none of the disciples are here in this moment. That Jesus is suffering alone. That there's no one speaking up in his defense. So, what I'm saying now isn't to justify sitting by while others take advantage of you or others. But there are times, and particularly times as Christians, where we just have to let things go. We can't make every argument our argument. We can't make every fight our fight. We can't make every pugnacious conversation our conversation. Do you ever feel like you gotta have the last word? Jesus' model is so powerful. He looked to the joy ahead, and Hebrews says, look to him. Look to him as our model. I mean, someone calls you Tuesday morning and reams you out in your place of business, and what does that want to make you do? Let them have it. You're a teacher. A parent calls, and the parent is unreasonable about your classroom policy. 
and you want to let that parent have it. Your kid. Your parents are coming after you and you feel like they're the unjust ruler. What do we do? Remember Jesus. The one who willingly endured shame, mockery, unjust authority without seeking to defend himself. I mean, our tendency when, when someone attacks us is to be defensive. But Jesus is the opposite. There is not a single accusation here that is just. They're all unjust. And not only that, there's no one else standing up for him. If he doesn't stand up for himself, no one will. And so what does he do? He humbly submits because of the joy that lies ahead. And our Christian witness should be more characterized by the humility of Christ and less characterized by the self-justifying, defensive insistence on getting in the last word and getting our pound of flesh. Christ died for the sins of the world at the hands of unjust authorities. Pilate completely abdicates his responsibilities. And the crowd, they're no better. They're a bunch of fickle people. A few days before, they were singing his praises. They're the ones that were hailing him as king of the Jews. Welcoming him, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And now we see them demanding his head. Now Pilate sees Jesus as an opportunity, not a threat. Remember, he's a political opportunist. It's a way to sort of placate the crowds. Now in every culture, not just our culture, but every culture, there are gaps between the elites and the common man. And Pilate seeks to exploit that. Perhaps he can win the favor of the people by undermining the Sanhedrin's plans to lynch Jesus. So he crafts a plan. Now, Roman law allows for two forms of amnesty for prisoners. One form of amnesty is to release someone before you pronounce judgment. So Pilate, before trying Jesus, can release him. Another is kind of what we commonly know as pardoning a prisoner. So it's someone who's been condemned, but the governor or the president can issue a pardon on behalf of this condemned person. Pilate has both of these, both of these at his disposal. He, he can release Jesus by either means. Now he's seen many rebellious Jews. Jesus is not the first person to rot in his prison. And he can easily see that unlike these other rebels, Jesus is not attempting to overthrow the government. So he imagines that the people will give both him and Jesus an easy out, and then in doing so, he can undermine the Jewish leaders. So verse 17, he offers to release a prisoner. Now, it's customary for the governor in Judea each Passover to deliver a prisoner, to, to release a prisoner as a way of sort of celebrating the Passover. So he asks, whom do you want me to, be, who, whom do you want me to release for you? Apparently assuming it's going to be Jesus. Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Now verse 18 tells us Pilate understands what the chief priests are doing. He knew that it was out of envy they had delivered him up. So he's not deceived in terms of Jesus' guilt or innocence. But the crowd surprises Pilate. This is where he misreads the situation. Verse 16 introduces us to this man named Barabbas. Now Mark tells us that unlike Jesus... Barabbas was a murderer and a rebel against Rome, acknowledged. This dude is a problem for Pilate. He's clearly guilty, already condemned. But the Jewish leaders, again, are working behind the scenes, and they make sure it's Barabbas, not Jesus, that people want released. Verse 20, now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas 
and destroy Jesus. I mean, they are always scheming, always energizing to get what they want. And there's been more than one Sunday school class or power group in many a church across this nation who's operated in the same way. Pilate can release one prisoner. So if he releases Barabbas, what should he do with Jesus? The mob cries out, verse 22, let him be crucified. Pilate's ill-fated question, rather than leading and doing what he knows is right, putting the question to the crowd has led him to an end he knows isn't just. And so he argues with the crowd. He protests Jesus' innocence. Verse 23, why, what evil has he done? But the mob shouts even louder, what? Let him be crucified. Mob rule is no rule at all. So Pilate washes his hands and delivers Jesus to death. It's Pilate's job, Pilate's job to uphold justice. It's Pilate's job to uphold righteousness. It's Pilate's job to rule. It's Pilate's job to deliver Jesus from this moment, but instead he delivers him to death. It's his job to protect the innocent, but he fails miserably. Now, of the various forms of capital punishment used in the Roman Empire, crucifixion is the worst. It's the most shameful, typically reserved for slaves who rebel against their owners. So in this trial, Jesus is a victim of two forms of evil. On the one hand, we have the active evil of the Jewish leaders stirring up injustice in a lynch mob. Now, what is it that motivates the chief priests? It's some combination of religious and cultural pride that insists on influence, that cannot lose influence to this usurper. You see, in its worst forms, religious zeal separate from Christ gets rabid and violent. When we get violently demanding, we're manifesting the selfish ambition of the Jews. Yet most of the time, we don't see it quite like this. Most of the time, we see it in seed form in our lives, not in the full-blown mob violence we see here. We see it in our resentment against the success of someone else. We see it in our resentment at God's blessing on another business rather than our own. We see it in resentment on our, res on our view of how God is blessing another congregation, not our we must guard ourselves against religious or cultural ambition that grows unfettered. It's easy to excuse sinful ambition and call it something else if it's done in the name of doing something good. But the other evil we see here is that of Pilate. Now, on the one hand, Pilate's not out to get Jesus. I mean, he has no agenda other than keeping the peace, self-protection, Yet the just thing for him to do would have been to speak up and end the injustice, especially because he's the leader. Now, Pilate can't be held responsible for every injustice that happens anywhere on any street in Jerusalem this week, but he is responsible for executing justice in his sphere of authority, and he fails to do so. His passiveness, in the end, leads him to participate in the evil. He starts as an observer, but in the end as a participant. He moves from sort of a weak protest against the wrongness of this moment to sending Jesus to the cross. I mean, no matter how many times Pilate physically washes his hands, the Jews cannot execute Jesus without Pilate. 
I mean, who pronounces judgment? It's not the Jews. They're not permitted to. It's Pilate in the end who sends Jesus to death. So we must ask, how can we actively and passively affirm the goodness of God in our sphere of authority? In other words, fathers, God calls us not to be passive in our leadership of our homes, but to be actively executing and modeling the love and goodness of God. Not sitting back and allowing those under our care to suffer. The easy passive way isn't the right way. As employees, we shouldn't be the kind of employees who rail against the man, but nor should be the kind of people who sit passively by while others rail against the man. We engage for the good of others around us. Pilate washes his hands. There are a lot of dark moments in this passage. But to me, the darkest moment of all is verse 25. When the Jewish people speak up, when Pilate seems to object, they cry out, his blood be on us and our children. What a mindless, godless, blasphemous thing to pronounce on your children. I mean, what kind of evil is this? That not only owes owns the guilt of this for themselves, but for their children. Barabbas is set free, and Jesus' blood is indeed on their hands. Verse 26, Pilate has Jesus flogged. Jewish historian Josephus describes for us the process of Roman flogging. The prisoner is stripped naked. And then beat, there's a handle with Long leather straps attached. At the end of each of these straps is a bit of bone, glass, or metal. There's no limit to the number of stripes a prisoner can receive. And they're beat often to the point where they don't even resemble a human being anymore. In fact, it was so gruesome that women were exempted from watching floggings. Because they're so brutal. And yet, in the midst of all of this evil... There are remarkable moments of truth. And the truth comes from surprising places. Our final verses find Jesus in one of the most helpless positions imaginable. Stripped by the soldiers. 2004, our nation and the world was scandalized by the publication of pictures and videos from Abu Ghraib. If you were around, you may remember this moment. There were 17 soldiers dishonorably discharged and prosecuted for crimes against prisoners in Iraq. And if you've ever seen any of those images, those images are like what Jesus is experiencing here. Verses 27 through 31, he's subjected to similar treatment. It's easy to read past verse 28 and get to the crown of thorns in verse 29 because it's such a picturesque image of what our Savior suffered. But don't miss verse 28 they stripped him imagine this that you could call 12 legions of angels and wipe out the entire battalion of soldiers you're the god who spoke all things into existence 
You're the one who by his word upholds all creation by the word of his power. You're the one who has existed from all eternity. Every good that has ever been in the universe came from you. And you sit here and they strip you naked in front of a battalion. Some 600 soldiers. Jesus endures the ultimate hazing experience. Just imagine, as a grown man, how humiliating this is. To be stripped naked, laid bare in front of all of these men mocking you. Their mocking is centered on the idea that Jesus could be a king. They throw on him a scarlet robe, likely an officer's cloak, a crown made of thorns. They hand him a mock scepter, a reed in his hand, and they take the same reed and they beat the crown of thorns into his head, likely driving it further into his skull. Have you ever been spit on? I have, one time. It's one of the most degrading feelings that you could ever experience. This spittle from someone else's mouth flies, strikes you. Jesus stripped naked, beaten, bloody, humiliated, spit on. He's humiliated in the grossest way possible. But after all of this humiliation, they strip him naked again, put his own ripped clothes back on him, and send him out to die. I mean, by this time, he's been stripped naked three different times. His clothes are likely in shreds. But look for a moment back at the end of verse 29. Kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. In the 2000 Russell Crowe film, Gladiator, you may remember where Gladiator speaks to the emperor and says, We who are about to die salute you. This phrase in Roman history is preceded by Ave Imperator, Ave Caesar, Hail Emperor, Hail Caesar. So the soldiers take up their own phrase in mockery of the Son of God, Hail King. Yet in this moment, in their derision, in their mockery, they ironically utter true words. And if you track through these chapters, it's remarkable. Because there is a lot of truth identified about Jesus, but it's always from an unbelieving mouth. First, it's Caiaphas saying, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus says, you said so. Then it's Pilate saying, are you the King of the Jews? Jesus again says, you said so. And here it's the soldiers declaring, hail, King of the Jews. In every instance, remarkably, it's a faithless pagan sinner declaring the truth about Jesus that he is the king. He is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus is the king not only of the Jews but of all creation. And on this day the king is humiliated but Revelation 19 tells us that there is coming a day when the king will return. And when he returns he will come riding a white horse with the sword that is the word of God coming out of his mouth, and on his robe and on his thigh there is a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And Philippians 2 tells us that on that day every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
He is the Lord of Lord. He is the King of Kings. He is the God of God. Jesus rules over all. And there is no important decision facing any one of us than this. Will you bow in faith to the King? Or will you bow one day in judgment before the King? The Savior who loved us and gave himself for us invites you to trust him. He deserves our worship and he will receive our worship. Would you turn from your sin and embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? Let's all take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk to God personally and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.